You may be seated. Our scripture lesson this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. I'll give you a minute to find that if you don't have a Bible of your own or a device um, that you want to use. You're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you. In the beginning verses of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has told us how we've been made alive in Christ. And now we will go on to continue with verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone, In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our God and Father. You are a God exalted who is there, but a God who also speaks to us, who is not silent. I I pray that you would just speak to us this morning through your word, that you would be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it, and be with all of us sinners as we sit under it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, um, this isn't actually the sermon I kind of set out to preach on Ephesians 2. This funny thing happens. Um, I, I, we decided to take a break from, from preaching through Romans, you know, I mean, to just spend like two weeks preaching sermons to kind of launch small groups and community groups. And so I picked, you know, the, the sermon from Acts 2 last week to kind of do the like rousing, you know, exciting start of that. And then this one from Ephesians 2 to talk about the hard work of unity and living together in peace, you know, in community and small groups. And, um, and I still want to preach that sermon. But over the last um, couple of weeks, as I sat with this text, I also found myself sitting with a bunch of stuff happening in our world. And, I mean, the protests in Charlottesville and the sudden flaring up of discussion about the divisions and the racial divisions in our country and 
had some conversations with a few of you about that. Um, and this text, even more than about something like small groups, is really one of the paramount texts in um, Scripture about our call as Christians to cross those racial divisions and to challenge that. And, um, and initially I was kind of resistant to making that the sermon that we were going to talk about, not because I'm opposed to talking about that topic, but because I was just like, no, like I've decided what we're, preach- you know, we're going to preach about this morning, uh, and it's about small groups. And um, yeah, but the more I reflected and prayed on this text, uh, the more I felt like maybe it was good and needful for us to talk about some of those issues and what scripture says about them as well, even though I didn't originally mean to. And I say that because I kind of feel like this is going to be a little bit of a weird sermon, and I didn't set out to do this. <laughs> but um, what I'd like us to do is walk through this text from Ephesians and kind of have a conversation about what it says that, that connects in some ways with both of those topics. I do want to have a conversation about our individual calls to live in community and relationship with each other, but I also feel like it would be good and appropriate for us to have a conversation about, um, about those broader divisions and, frankly, about race, because this text in many ways is about racial and ethnic divides in the church and how we as Christians address them. So what I want us to do this morning is walk through this text, and there's kind of three big ideas that Paul gives, three realities that he talks about in this text, and so I want us to just ponder those realities together and talk a little bit about how they address both of those challenges. Does that make sense? All right, Um, we're going to do that. But before we dive in, there's something to notice right up front. If you look at verse 11 at the beginning of our reading, um, just notice the first word is therefore. All right, so Paul has spent Ephesians 1 and the first half of Ephesians 2 proclaiming this huge, like, sweeping proclamation of the gospel and God's work of salvation. That God before time chose to save us, and we sinned and rebelled against God, but God came in Jesus Christ and suffered and died in order to save us. And that all culminates in the last few verses before our reading from chapter 2, where Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we've been saved by grace, by the Lord Jesus Christ, and called to live these lives that are transformed in obedience to him, Paul says. Therefore... And then he starts talking about Jews and Gentiles living together. And in Paul's world, um, that's kind of the big ethnic divide in the first century church, the divide between Jews and Gentiles. And one of the main applications, Paul says, therefore, we're supposed to cross that line. We need to be united even in the face of that kind of division. But he doesn't just say that. Instead, he gives us some reasons that that's true. So let's walk through the text and see those. First, Paul says, the first truth he gives us is that we are to seek unity because we are all outsiders in sin. We are all outsiders in sin when we're left to ourselves. So just start reading in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by, in the body by human hands, So when we talk about the divide between Jews and Gentiles, this is kind of shorthand for it, right? Circumcision, which I'm not going to go into in detail this morning. But um, 
I mean, in this world, this was this thing that, that Jewish people did because of Old Testament law and Gentiles didn't do. And so it was kind of stood in for this ethnic divide between these two people, right? And Paul here is primarily talking to Gentiles because in the church of Ephesus, they're kind of the dominant group. But he says then in verse 12, Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So Paul says, in yourself, before you were saved, you weren't on the inside, right? You weren't, you weren't like the good guys. You aren't by nature a part of God's people. You're not born into this Christian thing. None of us deserves it by blood or by birth. But instead, Paul says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he says, you were outsiders. You were far off. There's nothing in your group or in you that kind of makes you belong to this thing. But it's only Jesus and his blood that drew you near and made you a part of that people. And that's what makes the difference. So this is a really important truth that we're all outsiders in ourselves. Because there's this dangerous lie that can creep into our way of thinking. It's the lie in many ways that Paul's challenging in the book of Ephesians. And that lie is that Christianity belongs to people like us. That Christianity belongs to people like us. That lie can, can come out in all kinds of ways. I mean, one of those ways is in the way we think about race. I mean, never mind the stuff that's controversial right now. When you think about a Christian or a gathering of Christians in your head, right? When you picture like a normal average gathering of Christians, what color is their skin? Right? Is it, the, is it the same color as most of us? Because that's not actually the truth about the world that we live in, right? I mean, I mean like we're, our, the denomination of our church is Presbyterian, right? And if you know anything about Presbyterianism, even more than the average Christian, if you think about the average Presbyterian in your brain, right? You might well picture a, a white person. You know where the largest Presbyterian denomination is in the world? It's the Presbyterian Church of East Africa, there are more Presbyterians in Kenya than there are in the United States. And there are more Presbyterians in Nigeria than in the United States, and in Korea, and in Mexico, and in the Congo. In fact, there's, in South Korea, Myungsung Presbyterian Church, which is this one, not a denomination, this one mega church in South Korea has more people worshiping in it this Sunday than our entire denomination has, Right? And that's not just true about, like, Presbyterians. That's true of Christians in general. There are more Christians in Africa worshiping this morning than there are in America and Western Europe combined. And there are more Christians in Latin America than here. And there are more Christians in Asia than here, right? I mean, in God's church in the world, we're a minority. And that image of Christianity is somehow, for people like us, racially, just isn't true historically. I mean... Certainly not true of the Bible, right? This, this book is written by, by Jewish people, and without going into the, all the vagaries of history, Jewish people in an era when, I mean, when in our day they would have looked Arabic, right? I mean, when Jesus would have gotten stopped frequently at airports and things if he lived today. I mean, that's the reality of this book, right? And all of that should lend the lie to this language of Christendom um, and our Christian heritage that I heard people two weeks ago trot out in the name of white supremacy and racial superiority. I mean, those people talk about reclaiming our Christian heritage, and they think that means something white and European. 
and it is neither of those things. When Paul was writing these words in the book of Ephesians, most of our ancestors, if you have kind of a, you know, a European ancestry like I do, um, they were up in northern Europe dancing around trees dedicated to pagan gods and drinking blood and worshiping their ancestors, right? They, they weren't a part of this story in the New Testament. That, that was my people. And so, so the truth is that if even people as far off as that, right? I mean, if even white people somehow got included in the story of salvation God is telling in the Bible, then that's remarkable and broad. Okay? And if that's true of the big picture, um, if this story doesn't belong to people like us in those big kind of senses, that should also have profound effects on how we live as individuals. For example, still, about how we talk and think about race. Um, I think a lot of us at our moment in America have been trained to insist that that's a problem that only exists out there and doesn't exist in our hearts. Um, and we get kind of defensive and angry and bristle when the suggestion is that we struggle in the way that we perceive that issue. So let me just tell you what I know, all right? Because I'm not in the business of speaking for your heart. I grew up in an extremely kind of liberal-minded, tolerant home and, you know, went to, you know, got a good liberal arts education and all of that and, you know, I mean, would seek to not believe those things. But I know a couple months ago, I was in Rockford for a meeting and parked my car and there were like two cars on either side of me, right? And in the car on the one side of me was a bunch of like 20-something, you know, white kids kind of dressed, you know, rough. And in the car on the other side of me, there were a group of, you know, comparable black kids. And my heart did not feel the same way about the occupants of those two cars and how I, and how I felt about them. And I know that I'm not the only person who struggles with those things in his heart and in his gut. Which shouldn't surprise us. Because if we're outsiders, right, if we're sinners brought near only by the blood of Jesus, then we should expect that sin is something that we have to wrestle with in our hearts. It's not just going to be out there in the world. And that's true of more than just race, too. We've been, we focused there first, but that's true of the other things that divide us as well. Maybe not explicitly, but we often separate ourselves into little groups based on all kinds of stuff, right? We separate ourselves and drift away from relationships and complain about other people um, based on preferences and temperament and gifts and strengths and culture. We feel strange about spending time with people who have different interests than us or who are, I don't know, like 20 years older or younger than us. We do that for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons is because we often think that if people were really Christians, they should be more like us in those ways, which again is just another version of that same lie that Christianity belongs to people like us. I mean, I see myself doing that sometimes. I, in my heart, am judging people just because they're different from me, right? Have different gifts or interests or convictions about things that aren't Jesus. And I can dress all of that up in kind of spiritual-sounding or noble ways, but really, it's just that I want people to be like me, right? And if they aren't, I feel like there must be something that's wrong with them. But Christianity isn't just for people like us. That's the whole point of this thing. It's for humanity in all of its diversity. There's no personality or preference or culture or life stage or gifts or set of abilities or race or anything that makes us more like Jesus. 
All of us in our diversity are outsiders in ourselves, and all of us are drawn near only by the blood of Christ, which means that we need to realize that and work for that in the way that we do community. One of the things that naturally happens if we're doing life together in the way that Scripture calls us is that friction is going to emerge, right? We will um, learn about each other, and as we grow closer to each other, we're going to have these moments where we're like, wait, you like what? You know, you voted for who? You, you think what about the world? And that's, that's actually a good and important experience for us to have. Because even though in those moments it can be hard and we can find ourselves be challenged, that means we're actually doing community well with the diversity and the, you know, and the openness and truthfulness that we're called to. But that's good for us even when it creates tension. Because here's the thing, when that tension emerges, it tells us that we're looking like the church, being united across those lines. But it's also hard, right? Even though that's a good thing, it can also be hard, which is why it's good that Paul goes on and gives us a second reality. So he goes on in Ephesians 2 to say that we are earned peace by Christ. We are earned peace by Christ. And I know that phrase might sound weird, so let me try to show you why I'm saying it that way. So if you start in verse 14, it says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So it's not just that Jesus tells us you should live at peace with each other. Somehow Paul's saying Jesus is our peace. Jesus has done something that took those two ethnic groups on separate sides of this division and made them one. This wall that was between them, it's not that Jesus just says you should go climb it, but it's that he actually destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between them. How? First, in verse 15, he does it by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So Paul starts by talking about how Christ destroys the power of the law, which we were talking about in Romans, actually, just before we took this break. But here, what he's especially thinking about is what what we would call the ceremonial law that we find in scripture that is to say this set of laws that are meant to set kind of jews and gentiles apart from each other right about how you dress and how you eat and things like that he's saying that christ has ended those um that they don't apply anymore and that's a specific example that doesn't apply to us i know because most of us aren't dealing with those issues right now in the church but the reason that paul gives for that the reason jesus does that he says is because he is creating a new humanity one new humanity out of the two he's taking these two old human groups and he's making them into something entirely new which which is what, what paul's saying is that is that so jews to be saved to be part of this new humanity Um, they have to be rescued by Christ, and Gentiles, to be saved, to be part of this new humanity, they also have to be rescued by Christ. Neither of them can just sit in their old identities with all of the boundary markers and all of the privileges and all of the ways that it makes them different. They can't sit in those old identities and think that they're fine. Both of them are equally called into something new. So Jesus earns peace by creating a new humanity. We're going to roll that out in a minute, but there's more to it, because then he also goes on in verse 16, and he says, And in one body, Jesus did this to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So he also says that in the cross, Jesus is putting to death their hostility. 
Here's what I think he means by that. The Jews in the early church, they would look at the Gentiles beside them and they would say, but look, Paul, I mean, that sounds nice, but these are, these are bad people. They're cruel to us and discriminate against us and they've wronged us and they've sinned against us in all kinds of ways. They need to pay. The Gentiles in the early church would have looked at the Jews and said, but, but look, Paul, these people do bad stuff and they've, they've discriminated against us and they're cruel to us and they've wronged us and they've sinned against us in all kinds of ways and they need to pay for what they've done. So much of the hostility in both sides is fueled by the fact that both sides have wronged the other, right? People sin and they sin against each other and that often perpetuates our divisions. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has paid for all of the sins on both sides. That he's paid for my sins, which I happily confess, alleluia, but that he's paid for the sins of that other person as well. And so if I'm trusting in Jesus not to count my sins against me, and if I'm saying I'm free from the guilt of these sins, I cannot believe that while still using the sins of others against them. In the cross, Jesus puts to death our hostility, and that earns peace. And then one last way Jesus earns peace for us. He welcomes us into his family. If you read verses 17 through 19, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So Jesus died and rose again to connect me to the Father. He died and rose again so that I could have his spirit, that I'm not a stranger anymore, that I'm a member of God's household, which is great news. But Jesus also died so that that other person, whoever they are that I'm divided from, he died so that they could be connected to the Father. And he died and rose again so that they could have that same Holy Spirit. And he died and rose again so that they aren't strangers anymore, but that they are members of God's household too. I cannot claim the benefits of Jesus for myself in that way if I deny them to others. So what does that mean? So one of the key things, I think, that keeps us divided when I reflect whether it's relationships or the world or whatever is what I've kind of mentally for a long time called, but what about-ism, all right? But what about-ism? So here's what happens. I, there's this person, and I don't like them, and I'm divided from them, and I feel Jesus challenging that in my heart, you know, through passages like this one, and what I immediately do is I say, but what about... And then I start talking about the other person's failings and sins, right? Now, here's the thing that's interesting to me about that, but what about-ism. Oftentimes, in the world, the way that people try to confront that and overcome that, that thing that causes division is by denying that the other person's ever wrong, by trying to tell us just like, oh, just, you know, they're not wrong and everything's fine and you're just making things up. Sometimes that's true. Um, but, but often there are wrongs on both sides. Often the other person has done things that are hurtful or wrong. But see, the Christian response isn't to deny their faults. It's rather to say, that might be true, but what about me? What about me? Because there's always enough blame to go around in both directions. They are sinners, but so am I. And what do I do with my sin? 
I mean, I, I say that it's covered by the blood of Jesus. I say that Jesus paid it all. I say that I don't bear it anymore. And if I say all of that, then I cannot, but what about the other person's sin? Because if that's true for me, if I'm saved by God's free grace, then I can't hold the sins of others against them either. That applies to big national um, debates like race um, and the other divisions in our country. In fact, that but what aboutism is epidemic. Um, I I watched a person last week, like me, by which I mean a white evangelical pastor, um, on television discussing issues of race, and it was 100% but what aboutism. He would not he would not say that white supremacists were wrong because all that he was willing to talk about were the sins of the other side. And here's the thing. He might or might not have been right. I'm not going to touch on the politics of that debate, right? But there may well have been blame to go around on both sides. But that doesn't matter because my job, right, as like a white evangelical pastor is to own the sins of people like me and to make clear that the people like me, right, to confess and repent of those things and to trust in the gospel to deal with the sins of the other side. That regardless of how I feel about them, My calling is to always own and repent of the ways that I am failing and that I am wrong and to seek to make peace as much as it depends on me. And that same principle applies to personal relationships. If I can do that, but what aboutism on issues of race and politics and national debates, I can also do that, maybe even more, in my personal relationships with people. I mean, I spend a ton of time when I really reflect on my heart Um, dealing with the the divisions or the bad feelings I have about different people. I deal with them by by privately listing their sins to myself, right? I start to feel bad about the fact that, you know, this person I'm divided from, and so I just run through this litany of their sins and the way they failed. And the thing is, the answer is not for me to pretend like they haven't sinned. The answer, just like it was on those big things, is to preach the truth of Jesus to myself. That if Jesus is creating a new humanity out of our, um, then all of the old things that I used to hold and take pride in over against that person have to disappear. And that if Jesus has put to death the hostility, then that means that I can't hold those sins against that person, even if they're real. And if he's called us into one family, that means that I have to figure out how to get over it because... Because I'm stuck with this person, right? Just, just like you do in an actual family. That you have to learn to live at peace with each other and die to those sins and love each other, whether we like it or not. Because in Jesus, we have been made one. So that's two truths that should create unity. That we are all in ourselves outsiders because of our sin. And we are all earned peace in Jesus Christ. There's one more thing that Paul gives us in this text, because he doesn't just talk about the sort of should that comes from the past and the present. He also tries to give us a vision for the future and for what we can become as we live out this calling. He tells us that we are being built into God's temple. We're being built into God's temple. So Paul shifts the metaphor a little bit in verse 20. He starts picturing not just a household, as he does in verse 19, but a house itself. So verse 20, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So we start with the apostles and prophets. That's shorthand for scripture. The prophets are how Paul talks about the Old Testament, and then the apostles are 
the people who write the New Testament. So we're built on scripture with Jesus as the cornerstone, that, that first stone you set that everything else is measured from and oriented to. We're being built like each of us are a block on top of that. And what we're being built into then in verse 21, Paul says, he says, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. We're being built together into a holy temple. We need to stop because we use the word temple and I think we just picture like a church building, right? Um, But this is not a temple. This is just a building where the church, us, gathers for worship. In the Old Testament, the temple is not just a convenient place to meet for worship. It somehow stands for God's presence on earth. That when the temple is finished, this cloud descends from the heavens. That's God's glory that fills it. And there's this kind of sense that, the, that while God is everywhere, right, all the time, he is somehow especially present at this one place in the temple in the Old Testament. That if you really wanted to be close to him, that's where you would go. And Paul is saying that now in Jesus, a new temple is being built. And it's us. Verse 22. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. That if God's holy presence especially dwelled in that temple in the Old Testament, now it's supposed to dwell in the midst of us. And in the midst, that's important too. Because I think we hear that and we think that that means it's sort of, you know, that it's Jesus dwelling in each of our hearts which is true. By the Holy Spirit, God dwells in each of us, but that's not the image Paul's using here in Ephesians 2. I'm not the the temple, I'm just one of the bricks in the wall, and the temple is built as we are joined together, that we, as we are built up together, are a dwelling place for God. As we live in unity and love, as we seek peace and overcome division and do these things that Paul's talking about, we actually embody God's presence on earth. One of the most shocking themes to me in the New Testament, I honestly struggle with this, is the idea that our unity is appropriately a test that the world should use for the truth of the gospel. So this is what Jesus prays in John 17. He says, My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am you, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So do you hear that? Jesus prays that we might be one the way he is one, united with the Father. And the purpose is so that the world would believe the gospel. And in case we miss it, he then prays in the next two verses. He says, verses 22 and 23, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prays that we would be brought to complete unity because then he says the world will know that we've been sent by God and that God loves them. We together are meant to be God's temple. And so when we fail to live like that, when we turn against each other and divide from each other, we're actually telling the world lies about God. One of the reasons that I worry so much about the kind of culture of hate and division 
that's around us. One of the reasons as a pastor that I spend a lot of time wrestling with it is because I worry that that constant drumbeat of hate and division and those people and, the, you know, the, 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 those other people and those divisions, that, that as we live in that world, that gets driven down into our hearts. And that as that happens, and as that, those fractures actually start to show themselves in our churches, that we end up showing the world untrue things about God. So culturally, we need to be for people who seek unity. Not that deny that there are differences, or not that don't have opinions, but that refuse to engage in the kind of rhetoric of hate and slander and the constant kind of bashing of other people. Regardless of where we fit in the culture, we need to be gentle and wise with our words and speak respectfully of others and listen to them often and carefully and long and hard and befriend them and, and even defend them and cross the lines that divide us. And we need to embody that in our personal lives and relationships. All of that can sound fine when it's big and grand, when we're talking about issues of race and culture and, you know, I mean, and, and the culture of fear that's around us. But that also applies to us. We need to seek out people who are different from us and make a point of trying to befriend them and know them and, um, and spend time with people who look and sound and act in ways that, you know, that, that are different from us and seek to be united to them. We need to pursue peace and reconciliation with people, even people who are divided from us because of their sins. And we need to do our small part to make this little corner of Jesus' church here, right, into a place that shows forth that unity. But here's the thing. While all of that's true, that's only kind of one side of the application of that. I think when we're here, we're supposed to be this temple in which God dwells, right? And when we hear that God, you know, that people see Jesus in our unity— I at least immediately feel guilty. <laughs> I don't know about you. Um, and that's not all wrong, because that is supposed to remind us of our failings and challenge us. But it's also telling us what we can be, right? I mean, like, like nobody in our country is impressed by people just kind of banging the, you know, the same kind of rhetorical drums of hate and division. But people are actually shaken when you refuse to operate in those categories and seek to cross lines. Not crossing lines pretending like everything's okay, but when you look at someone and say, look, we disagree and I have issues with you, but because of Jesus, even though we should be enemies, I'm going to seek to live as your friend. I mean, people don't know what to do with that, right? And, 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 and that hard love that we're called to, that actually, that costs us, and we'll have to work and bleed for that, but, um, but that actually reveals God to people, that, that people actually become Christians when they see you show that kind of love, and that, that we actually experience God's presence when we show that kind of love. And that can be true of us. In some ways is, and it even more can be true of us locally as a church. We often talk about how certain churches as they fail to do this, right, can drive people away from Jesus. And that is very true. But churches can also be places of healing and hope, places where people actually get to experience Jesus in the community of the faithful. There have been moments over the years when I have been in dark places and feel like I can't, I can't you know, like I can't feel God, right? And the people around me, as they come near to me and pray for me and lay hands on me and eat with me and spend time with me, actually somehow manifest God to me. 
that I'm able to believe in him again and feel his presence again because of the community that these people are being to me. And we can be that as we live together as the church. We can be that temple of the living God. So would you pray with me that that would become ever more a reality for us? That through the little things like small groups and Sunday gatherings and through the big things that we engage with in the world, that we would seek to show forth the peace and unity that Jesus calls us to, so that the world might know the reality of his love. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Oh, I just... (laughs) It's so easy for me, I think, so often to just despair when I think about these issues. But these things are true, not because of my effort, but because of what Jesus has done. So I pray that you would teach us to live into that. To live into the reality that he has paid for our sins and the sins of others. To live into the reality that he welcomes us into your family together. And that we might live out that reality. That you might live in our midst and that you might show forth to the world. We pray all of this in his strong name. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them Take myself and I will be
this morning. Um, do sign up for small groups if that's something that you're interested in. Do join us, please, if um, we have fellowship time after the service. There's lots of stuff happening right now, so please also just be checking your bulletins and keeping, keeping track of all of the different kids and youth and adult things that are going on. Now go with the Lord's blessing. May the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all now and always. Amen. Thank you.